Welcome to the Words Library. This is our 16th talk, and today we're going to be talking about philosophy and self-development. More so, we will elucidate, shed light on the idea on how philosophy is self-development. With the help, of course, of the great prolific Lithuanian philosopher and writer Aldrich Ustavinus, we will be using his philosophy as a rite of rebirth to serve as the main lamp that can light the way for us to achieve our to, to achieve what the Greeks would call the telos, our goal. And so the title of the book is Philosophy as a Rite of Rebirth. And that in itself is jam-packed with densities of self-developmental maxims. We've spoke about before of what philosophy is, and we've given a multitude of different de definitions of philosophy. Clearly, we can see by now philosophy is definitely multidimensional. It has, it's multifaceted. It has many sides, and therefore, that presupposes it has many definitions. This, unfortunately, has given rise to its also misinterpretations, because some of those misinterpretations are probably coming from truth. But fundamentally, we spoke about before how philosophy is simply the act of making sense of things. Philosophy is simply the process of being subjected into chaos and bringing a little bit of order from it. From an academic perspective, philosophy is concerned with using different methodological systems to rationally and logically justify things and claims. More so, philosophy is a journey. It's an adventure where one leaves one's individual subjective interpretations of things and seeks and goes on an adventure, leaves home and goes out of their comfort zone and goes on an adventure to arrive at a destination. And that destination is the objective capturing of reality. Therefore, a philosopher is a seeker of truth. Now, philosophy as a way of life is concerned with the love of wisdom, with seeking wisdom out from one's hardships in life. Philosophy is manifested when the individual is exposed to a trial and tribulation or an unfortunate situation and the individual is able to extract insight, thus making that unfortunate situation a fortunate situation. So philosophy is many things. Now, philosophy has a right of rebirth. Rebirth, we can break that down and see the R-E, re, which is Latin for return. Therefore, rebirth literally means to return to birth. And birth is the first component of the trinity of life, right? Life is a product of birth, growth, and decay. Birth is the first component. Therefore, rebirth is simply returning to the beginning. It's a second chance at life. It's a, it occurs by a initiation by undergoing trials and tribulations and proving oneself worthy and then coming out twice born. It gives rise to the idea of igniting a regeneration of character and conduct. And so from every experience you are faced in life, simply because every environment you are exposed to is an opportunity to extract insight, we can see every environment you're in is an opportunity for an initiation if which you accept you then become an initia. And on our 11th talk, or one of our previous talks, we spoke about Cicero, and he spoke about the initia, are those wise men and women from the past who were initiated into the greater mysteries, who were 
exposed to the ancient teachings of life and it's from them that we learn the doctrines of happiness it's from them we learn to understand what philosophia the love of wisdom really is the title of this book alone philosophy as a right of rebirth is simply talking about philosophy from a self-developmental perspective a spiritual a sacred self-developmental perspective not the superficial perspective of self-development where one works on the self to promote one's own self-interest but where one works on the self to give back to that which is higher than themselves like working on the self to give back to different animals and different ecosystems or working on oneself to give back to other people to one's children's parents colleagues to the people that's that sacred dimension, that's that sacred component there. Rings of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, chapter eight, book nine, where he talks about philosia, philo, love of, osia, coming from the Greek word autos, which is where we get the English word auto from, which means self. Therefore, philosia means self-love. And Aristotle talks about two forms of self-love. The first one is where one works on oneself as a means to give to oneself. It's a selfish act. The latter, less less common form of self-love is the virtuous form of self-love where one works on the self as a means to obtain virtuous principles and virtue necessitates other people virtue comes into play when other people are thrown into the equation what will you do then how will the decisions you make be governed what will govern the decisions you make and what will be the result how will other people be affected that's where virtue will come into play and so philosophy here is ultimately concerned with working on the self as a means to produce something beneficial to other living organisms. And so with this foundation, we can now begin the path to understand philosophy and we can enter now this philosophic world. And so from Algis Ustavenus, we learned that in antiquity, philosophy was a disciplinary system that governed the decisions we would make as we would maneuver through the divine and intellectual drama called life, as he says it. And Ustavinus talks about how to, he, he gives a little bit of contextual references to understand how the ancients viewed philosophy. And it's kind of similar to how the modern world views a spiritual path or, a, or yoga. It's ultimately concerned with the spiritual path is presupposing a praxis, a system, a practice that one engages in on the daily basis where one is dedicated. And it, they're dedicated to something beyond themselves. People would engage in philosophy not only as a means to serve as a stabilizing factor to the chaos of human thought, right? presupposing the benefits of rationality and logic, but philosophy served as something deeper, something much denser, which would break free from the material encapsulations of logic and rationality and kind of go into that which is beyond. And so to the ancients, philosophy would begin with the questions, the fundamental questions of that which was intelligible, that which was simple, that which was stable, the basic stuff. And from there, Philosophy guided their, their decisions that they would make as they would engage in these specific inquiries and they would go deeper down into more complex questions. 
where they would study the changeable phenomena that's only perceptible to the senses. But at this point, somehow along the way, philosophy became merely a, a logical system. Stuck inside the temporal world, philosophy was only used to study that which we can perceive to the senses. Another interpretation of philosophy is coming from the 18th and 19th century European Enlightenment era, where philosophy was used to replace the irrationality of religion. People wanted scientific, logical, rational explanations for things, and they didn't want to keep appealing to God as a means to explain something. And so philosophy put forth a rational resolution to a irrational problem. But then at this time, philosophy, although it had an achievement here, became this aspect of it, this functionality, this one use of philosophy became the ideal representation of philosophy, thus giving rise to the modern interpretation of philosophy being merely a system of logic and rationality. And more so, philosophy has been reduced to logic and linguistics, serving nothing more as mental gymnastics, intellectual stimulation. We understand philosophy to be self-developmental because Ustavinus tells us in the book that the purpose of philosophy is to change the perverted nature, to transform it, eventually leading it to happiness and to restoring its divine identity. And he got that interpretation coming from the actual beliefs and doctrines of the ancients, of their mysteries of death, of transformation, spiritual rebirth, cosmological theories, their systems of archetypal symbolism, and the ritualized exercises of the divine life. The way in which the ancients lived, of course, was fundamentally different from the way in which we live today. Egyptian theology included superstition and myths intentionally because Egyptian theology used material realities. They used symbols. They used the semiotic logos, the reasonable signs, right? The ontological hieroglyphs, ontological coming from the Greek word antos, which means being. And so they would look to the world and see symbols. They would see animals. They'd see the way they move. They would stay, they'd watch them. They would study them. They didn't have distractions the same way that you and I do in the modern world today. And they would come up with divine representations using these material realities. And these were then used to represent the higher realities. And philosophy was the practical system that they used to penetrate into the depths of the divine unknown. And out of this, they came to revere and respect this disciplinary system that they developed that was called philosophy. You see even myths, even mythologies, simply because they didn't have the fundamental context of how these myths affect, affected these people. That's why mythologies are not only filled with moral and ethical lessons, but they're filled with something a little bit more and it poses the question, should we acknowledge them? Should we re-acknowledge them? Should we restudy them? It's one thing to be able to read ancient Greek or ancient, or be able to read ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, something else to have the contextual necessity of their beliefs, of their views, of their condition of living, all of which affected the art that they produced. So it poses the question, if, 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 you, if you're subscribing to the notion or if you have an interpretation of antiquity, you, you really have to ask yourself, where is your interpretation coming from? Because even some of the greats made mistakes. Aristotle, 
arguably one of the greatest minds to ever live for he acknowledged almost every single thing inside the sphere of human knowledge made a fundamental flaw when he came in and misinterpreted Thales's writings and said Thales came up and said that water is the cause of life is the primary reality and Aristotle interpreted that from a scientific biological perspective but he was wrong because Thales who is attributed with being the originator to philosophy in 585 BC, this is essentially where philosophy was systemized, or when philosophy was systemized. Our, our understanding of Thales is coming from Aristotle, who read his teachings. But Aristotle misinterpreted Thales' teachings because Thales came to Greece as an old man. He, he wandered all through Egypt and was taught in Egypt. Therefore, philosophy couldn't possibly have been born in Greece if the person who gave rise to philosophy in that exact geographical location at time was one, an elder, and two, just arrived in Greece after tra traveling all through Egypt. You see, when Thales was talking about water, he explained water as a primordial, ineffable principle that gave rise to the gods. That's literally why Thales says there are many gods. It's referencing the notion of Anusha Ameli, God wears many masks coming from the ancient cuneiform scripts from ancient uh, uh, Iraq. So the ancient traditions of wisdom included things that we think today are irrational, that are superstitious, but we're not looking at them in the correct context of the way in which they were supposed to be viewed, the way in which they were created. So at that point, we're forced to suspend judgment. We have to go back to the drawing board and forget all of the things we think we know about antiquity, about all the things we think we know about philosophy, about all the things we think we know about self-development. Referring back to philosophy now, philosophy, it's important to understand, it included inner transformation, right? It, it gave rise, philosophy, out of everything that we kind of just said, these, their theories, it produced the anertheoreticos, the contemplative one, or the gurma, the silent one, this was necessary in order to understand the ontological nature of, the, of human existence. Truth was said to be discovered only when the individual was worthy, and the individual was worthy simply by trial and tribulation, by initiation, by entering into the mysteries. And remember, the mysteries comes from the Greek word mustedion, which means an act that changed one's status. And so if we're going to take away anything from this talk, it's, it's when we look at anything, especially ancient traditions, we really have to suspend judgment and ensure that we have the correct key. We have the correct interpretation because as the ancients knew, there were many different ways to interpret one thing. It gives rise to the fact that, of course, everyone will have a different interpretation of something. And just because everybody has a different interpretation, it doesn't mean only one of them is right or wrong. We reference the term Anusha Ameli coming from the ancient cuneiform tablets, and cuneiform is the first ever linguistic, logical form of language ever created. And in it, we see Anusha Ameli, which, mean, which meant God wore many masks. And of course, this is the case because that which is what we're referring to as God, of course, is complex in nature, multidimensional, filled with multifaceted. And so, of course, every different, every geographical location is going to interpret God differently. And so it's absurd to say that because of all the different religions, because of the plurality of the gods, they must all be wrong.
there can't be many different things of the same exact thing. No, of course there is, because God is incredibly complex. And the ancients knew that, and they knew that the one could be interpreted in many different ways. Now, of course, today, being the young children that we are as human beings and thinking that we're the apex predators of the world, we think we can use the system of reason and rationality and logic effectively, but in actuality, all we're doing is limiting ourselves because we're using it incorrectly. Like the notion that philosophy started in ancient Greece. The ancients would laugh at that. The Greek philosophers weren't the fathers of philosophy. They were merely the children. And they perpetuated the teachings of Egypt, of Mesopotamia, of ancient Lebanon. Philosophy and both self-development are coming from ancient Middle East and an ancient Egyptian way of life. And in our next talk, we'll continue this line of inquiry further. And so with that, consumatum est.